these three weeks we're uh, reading through the uh, book of Habakkuk as part of our biggest sermon series, Mighty to Save, where we're looking together at some of these minor prophets. Uh, not minor uh, because of their importance, but minor, as we've been saying, because of really their, their length, their size. Uh, but each time we turn to uh, one of these minor prophets, they are uh, holding up a mirror uh, to us, so we might see ourselves as we are, but also uh, pointing us to God, lifting our eyes from our narrowed earthly existence to see God's glorious eternal reality. Uh, last week we started looking at Habakkuk chapter 1, we're going to pick up in uh, verse 12 uh, in a little while, but I'm going to do a bit of introduction uh, to start off with, particularly talking about uh, dads. Uh, there are some things uh, that many dads don't do very well. Uh, not every dad, but many. Uh, long hair is one of the things that dads don't do very well. Not, not necessarily growing long hair, but what to do uh, with long hair. Some dads have come up with some pretty ingenious solutions like this one. Uh, my dad would have loved that with uh, my two uh, sisters. You want to see it again, won't you? Uh, not every dad, but many dads struggle with cooking, uh, particularly in an era uh, gone by. Whenever my mum would go away uh, for a church event or church function or be away for something, um, the ladies in our church they would organise a roster to provide food for our family uh, because they knew that my dad couldn't. Um, not every dad, but many dads. Uh, many dads could relate to this one, perhaps. Uh, dirty nappies. How many new dads, when solids have started, have had the, the gag uh, reflex uh, going on there? We won't dwell on that for too long. Uh, one that's very personal for me, that as a dad, I can't do very well, that's two things at once. You know, the, the, the preaching pushes me to the extremities, slides there, Bible there, notes there, uh, and, and I have to keep talking at the same time. It's a wonder that I actually know what's necessarily coming out sometimes. Not every dad, <laughs> but some things that many dads can't do very well. There is one thing that no dad gets right all the time. That's justice. I'm sure we've got, each got our own story of getting it wrong. Perhaps we've misunderstood the situation. We've been uh, too quick to uh, reach a conclusion and to dish out the punishment. Perhaps we've been blinded by our own frustration and anger. One thing that no dad gets right all of the time is justice. There's an article in the Canberra Times uh, today about dads and their relationships with daughters, uh, particularly as they go through uh, into the years uh, changing around puberty and one of the teenage girls says this, fathers should leave being QC in the courtroom and be dad in the lounge room. We all know injustice when we see it, when we experience it, and each one of us are capable of it in justice. Now, while all dads 
and all mums and all young people and all old people, we all get justice wrong. Here's our big question today. Does God get it right? It's a fair question. Does God get justice right 100% of the time? This is a fair question to ask and it's a question that God is big enough to listen to and to stand up to. It's the question that's at the heart of Habakkuk's second complaint. He's saying, how can God be just if he uses evil and unjust people to punish evil and injustice? Let's recap what we've heard about Habakkuk so far. Habakkuk is God's prophet, appointed by God to speak God's message on behalf of God to God's people. He's in Judah in the 7th century BC, the southern part of Israel, after the northern tribes had been wiped out by the Assyrians. And the book of Habakkuk is Habakkuk's complaints to God and God's answers. Uh, Last week, we saw in the first 11 verses that his complaint to God was, God, what are you going to do about the evil and injustice amongst your own people, the people of Judah? God's shocking answer was that he was going to send the Babylonians, a people who are even more evil, more unjust, and they are going to come in and be used by God to punish his people in Judah. And so we come to Habakkuk's second complaint. You got the Bible open there? Habakkuk chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. We're going to read all the way to the end of chapter 2. Habakkuk says, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, 
He is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion? How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you'll become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. And your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Oh, what value is an idol since a man has carved it? Or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Okay, so we have here Habakkuk's complaint, his question, and then God's answer, which is directed to the Babylonians. Habakkuk's complaint starts with the foundation stones of what he knows about God. Verse 12, who does he know God to be? Well, God is everlasting. He's eternally before us and beyond us so that God has a perspective on all existence that we don't. That is one thing that Habakkuk knows. The second foundation stone for Habakkuk about God, there still in verse 12, is that God is holy. God is apart from us in moral purity. Verse 13, we see there that his eyes are too pure to look on evil. 
God and evil do not mix. There is no bit of evil, not a hint of evil in God. God, in being holy, has a perfect perspective on all that is right and wrong. Habakkuk knows that and the final foundation stone that we see in the beginning of his complaint, the end there of verse 12, that God is a rock, immovable, unchangeable, rightly fixed in his ways, not because he's stubborn, but because God is faithful and dependable. And so in Habakkuk's complaint, he lays down these foundation stones of what he knows and what he believes about God and then says, well, God, if you are like this, here's my difficulty. How can you allow the evil Babylonians to do to Judah what you say they are going to do? So middle of verse 13, why then do you tolerate the treacherous? He's talking about the Babylonians. Why, God, are you silent while the wicked Babylonians swallow up those more righteous than himself? His own people from Judah, the Israelites. That's his question. How, God, can you allow the more evil Babylonians to do to Judah what you say they will do? Now, God need not even respond to this. Habakkuk already has his answer. The answer is, God is everlasting, God is holy, God is unchangeable. And so for Habakkuk and for you and I, in our experience of the world, we will have difficulty holding these truths about God together. Yet never in the story of the Bible... Never in the history of the world is God's goodness and his righteousness ever threatened or diminished by the presence of evil and injustice in the world. Trying to get through your quote here. Here we go. Here it comes. There's a book that came out about 10 years ago called The Reason for God uh, by Tim Keller, subtitled Belief in an Age of Scepticism. Uh, I've been rereading this book again lately, though it's 10 years old, it's still a great book to read and a great book to give away to a friend who is a sceptic. Sceptic being a good thing, somebody who asks questions seeking an answer. And the first chapter that Tim Keller writes in this book in dealing with scepticism or in answering sceptics is to deal with the uh, evil and injustice and suffering in the world. And here's one of the things that he says. If you have a God great and transcendent enough, big enough, (laughs) to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God who is great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. What he's saying is that God always shows that he's so in control that he even uses what is evil to achieve his good purposes. Not just to accommodate evil, not just to turn everything out to a happy ending... 
but so that God's complete and loving rule in putting the world right might shine through. You see, every moment of Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, every single moment of it is evil and unjust. Yet there is not one moment through those days, through those hours, through those minutes, through those seconds, there is not one moment that God is not working out His good plans of salvation. God has a good and loving reason for every moment of that injustice. And so for us, we need to remember that we have neither God's perspective nor God's purity to make sense of everything in the world. Therefore, we need patience. Because we don't have perspective and purity, we need patience to understand and accept what we know and to patiently entrust ourselves to God for what we don't know. Now, this is what Habakkuk does in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will stand at my watch after he's laid down everything that he knows about God, after he's raised his complaint to God, he's going to stand at the watch. He's going to station himself. I'll look to see what he, God, will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint that he raises. He waits for God's answer and it's a woeful answer. An answer full of woe. It's an important answer, important answer for Habakkuk, for his people and for us. You can see there in verses 2 and 3 that there's a real emphasis on recording it. Write it down, make it plain so a herald may run with it. The revelation awaits at a point of time, speak it, that it not prove false, it will certainly come and not delay. And God lays out in his answer that there are two ways, there are, there are two existence. The wicked, who are like Babylon, that Habakkuk is raising the complaint about. Verse 4, have a puffed up future that will be blown away. And in contrast, the righteous, uh, those whose trust is in God, they wait patiently for his justice to shine through. See there verse 4? See, he, Babylon, those who are wicked... He is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Then what God gives in his answer is to talk about the woes that come on the wicked, those who are puffed up. As we look at them one by one now, uh, need to remember that these woes are addressed specifically and historically uh, to Babylon who were wiped out in 539 BC. But as we look at each one, I want to keep doing what God's prophet does for us, is hold up a mirror to ourselves. Um, and as we move through each one, I want to make a brief, very, very brief comment uh, about how this is a mirror uh, for us to look at ourselves. Well, verses 6 to 8 is the first woe, where God tells Habakkuk, that the tables will be turned on those who extort. Verse 8, God is saying, 
about the Babylonians, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? He's speaking to Babylon. Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. The first woe for Babylon is that the tables will be turned on them. For us, strong, the strong and the rich must always watch out for how they treat the weak and the poor, physically, politically, financially. The second woe, verse 9. The self-made kingdom of Babylon is a monument of shame. Verse 9. Woe to him, woe to Babylon, who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The self-made kingdom of Babylon, though, uh, those who would come in worshipping their own strength and might, what they would build is a monument of shame. Paul, in his writing to the Christians at Philippi, warns us of fixing our eyes on an earthly kingdom and an existence that we might build. He says of those who have their eyes on an earthly kingdom, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. The third woe is in verse 12 where God says that only His glory will remain beyond Babylon and into eternity. Verse 12. Woe to him, Babylon, who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Babylon might be here today, but will be gone, and as will any glory that they think they might have. And the only glory that remains into eternity is God's glory. Paul says, for us on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and reign, that glory is realised when the whole world recognises Jesus. Writing to the Philippians again, he says, At the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no glory for Babylon or the wicked. The fourth woe in verse 15 is that the Babylonians' cup of drunkenness will be filled with wrath. These are somewhat unsettling verses, I think. Verse 15, where God says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. It was a practice in the ancient world, particularly known by the Babylonians, to get their enemies, those that they have captured, their prisoners and their slaves, to make them drunk, so that they could do then to them whatever they wanted to degrade them, 
bring shame on their enemies, particularly women and young women. God says to Babylon, you will be filled with shame instead of glory. Their cup of drunkenness will be filled with the cup of God's wrath. As we hold up uh, God's word to us as a mirror to look at ourselves, we're not Babylon, uh, but we certainly need to be sober-minded with alcohol. That, that our behaviour and speech might be as pure after our last drink as it was before our first drink. It is very easy to use alcohol for the degrading of ourselves and for others. That does not belong among the righteous. The final woe, verse 18, God says that relying on anything or anyone other than him ends in woe. Verse 18, of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver and there's no breath in it. God says to Babylon that their reliance on idols, on things other than him, ends in woe. For Babylon, this was in tangible statues and idols that they could make out of wood and stone and cover with silver and gold. But any object of our confidence, including confidence in ourselves, will not endure into eternity. So Habakkuk was bringing a complaint to God complaining that Babylon looked like they would be winning, that they would trample over Judah. How could God be just if he was going to allow the evil and injustice of Babylon to punish the evil and injustice of Judah? Well, God says he is going to do something. God works out his good purposes in his good time, though Habakkuk can't yet see it. It was about 80 years later, that the Babylonians were wiped out, just as God said they would be. Now, for you and I, we see evil and injustice all around us. People who seem to have the upper hand, but that does not mean the wicked are winning. It does not mean that God's uh, sovereignty is threatened. We know even more than Habakkuk and God's Old Testament people of God's character. We know even more of who God is. We know even more of God's good plans in the world, bringing those plans and purposes to fruition through Jesus coming and dying and rising and ascending as judge and promised to come again. Uh, this is why God's word to us through Peter is timely. Can you turn again to our first Bible reading from this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, page 859 if you're using the church Bibles. I'm going to read all these verses again because they're good ones for us to be familiar with and to have in our head today. 
1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Here's the punchline. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. For us, knowing who God is and knowing what God has done for us in Jesus, we live by faith. We are among the righteous, those who have uh, faith in Jesus, and we live by faith, entrusting ourselves to God. It's a life of patiently submitting ourselves to what we know of God. It's a life of patiently following His ways. As we live amidst a world of evil and injustice, it's patiently waiting for God's justice and patiently seeking Jesus' glory. As, as Peter was writing to people, Christians, who were living in the midst of suffering and evil and injustice... He was urging them and pointing them to who Jesus was and his glory and his kingdom so that that might be the thing that captivates their lives, so that that might be what captivates our lives, what we invest in, what we dream about, the legacy that we might build into our families. Uh, Dads, last week I gave you an exercise to do this week. If you weren't here last week, uh, please tune into our sermon last week. There's an important message in there for dads for us to be looking in the mirror. Well, dads, how did you go looking in the mirror? It's hard. It's 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 a, it's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To ask those hard questions about ourselves. But here's my Father's Day gift for you today. Your your gift to you from me from New Life. Here's the. Father's Day gift for today, live for Jesus' glory, not your glory and not your kids' glory. Live for Jesus' glory. There's a new book come out in the last uh, little while, last few days really, by Russell Moore. The book's called The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. 
Uh, Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission in the Southern Baptist Convention in America. Uh, He carries a bit of weight when it comes to thinking about religion and ethics and he has a bit of experience as a family man. Uh, He has five sons. He's never had to wrestle with a vacuum cleaner with long hair. I've seen the photos of his sons. Very neat and tight hair. Not that you have to have neat and tight hair. Not that you even have to have hair, by the way. That's completely okay. He says something really insightful for us. Dads especially listen in here, but it's for all of us. He says this, When we value the family above God's kingdom, we actually end up destroying what we think we're upholding. He goes on with this encouragement or observation. Many Christians expect a family life that's tranquil and idyllic so that when they encounter struggles, it throws them off. Have you experienced that before in family? I, I can have my ambitions to, to be a godly dad and leading my family well. You know, as soon as you face that bit of sickness, the kid who spits the dummy, the parent who spits the dummy... Uh, the, the, the interruption, the inconvenience, the feeling down and flat, that can throw off your ambitions. He's exactly right with that. Dads, here's where the Father's Day gift extends a bit further. <laughs> when you and I, I say as a dad as well, when we face injustice, when we're treated unfairly, when tranquility and idyllicity, oh, how do you put idyllic into that one? When what is idyllic is no longer idyllic, when that happens in our lives, when that happens in our family, when that happens in our homes, we face injustice, when we're treated unfairly, maybe it's just an incident on the road. Your response shows your children what you believe about God's goodness and sovereignty. When our children are left out, we hear about them being bullied, maybe they've been treated poorly by a friend, maybe they're being harassed by a sibling, if that ever happens in your family. Maybe it's something that that little bit more serious outside the home and from what we are hearing that they're being mistreated by a teacher at school or misunderstood or given the rough end of the stick. This is an opportunity for discipleship. This is what will happen when we live for Jesus' glory, not our glory, not our kids' glory or our family's glory. This is the best thing that you can give your family. Now, almost immediately, we each are feeling our struggle and failure with this. We're aware of the fracturing of family, that perhaps we don't even live under the same roof uh, with the people that we have have or have had some kind of family connection to before, or maybe we do uh, live under the same roof but we can't communicate openly about... We, we feel this, we feel the disappointment and absence of family for some of us. Listen to what Russell Moore says about this. He says, we have a habit of equating family with the nuclear family as if it were simply mum, dad and the kids in a minivan. But everyone is facing family issues. 
The single Christian is not someone who doesn't deal with family. We are all sons and daughters. And even those who don't know their parents feel that absence acutely. But as Christians, we're all part of the family of God's people. God's people are talked about as family, not just through, through the Bible, through the New Testament, just not, not, not as a simple way of talking about relationships, but as a way of talking about, as we're gathered under the Lordship of Jesus, how we have a real connection to one another as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ. A real connection and a commitment to one another. Yes, the nuclear family is still very important and as we've been reading through 1 Peter, we've seen some very important instructions there for husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and siblings. But the church, as family, is so important for showing one another what faithful living looks like, that we might be supporting one another in it. Men and women and mums and dads, workers and Colleagues learning from each other, siblings and children, friends and mates. Habakkuk has a great complaint to God. He asks honest questions about the difficulties that he has in the world. But God can stand up to them because he's mighty to save. We do well to know this. We do well to pass it on to our families. We do well to patiently live by faith, entrusting ourselves to God and His way and helping one another along in that.